What lies beneath the sands of Egypt? An Uncharted X Journey with Ben Van Kirkwick. Episode 8 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. It's not a good day to be a bad guy! Hello and welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host Wayne along with my lovely co-host and wife Michelle. Hey there. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin where we cover such topics as UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, ghosts, the Michigan dog band, Bigfoot, and all things paranormal and strange in and around Michigan. Hey everyone, we're back. Hello everybody. We hope you are doing well as we get closer and closer to the release of the U.S. government's report on UFOs, or should I say UAPs. Yeah, they're probably going to put a PPO on your UAP. Why would they do that? Are they trying to keep things away from us? Gee, um, why would they? Yeah, I wouldn't have the slightest idea. But anyways... A big thank you again to everyone sharing and spreading the word about the podcast. We continue to grow as a podcast and a community, and we cannot be thankful enough. Yes, thank you, everyone. Also, once again, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. Please reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com and send us a brief summary of your experience and we will contact you to discuss things further and maybe get you on the podcast. And lastly, our merch store is now active. If you wish to support the podcast and wear some pretty cool swag, please make your way over to our merch store and take a look and see if there's anything that catches your eye. Links to our store can be found in the show notes, on our Facebook pages, and in the podcast description. We have all kinds of products to choose from. All right, Michelle, with that out of the way, I think it's that time. It is What's in the News. Yes, what is in the news? Well, it's not just the temperature soaring in Tampa, Florida. It looks like NASA is now investigating the Navy UFO videos, stating that there is something there. Interesting. So, yes, in Tampa, Florida, this comes to us by way of Fox 13, Tampa Bay. They write, The growing number of UFO sightings from military pilots and civilians is driving action at NASA. New Administrator Bill Nelson said the space agency is giving the sightings serious attention and investigating because at this point, the sightings defy explanation. So we know that Navy pilots have spotted the objects flying near sensitive government facilities. Commercial airline pilots and other civilian aviators have witnessed similar sightings in which they describe the objects appearing to defy limits of known aviation technology. As a former member of the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee and now the head of NASA, few have more insight on the eyewitness accounts than Nelson. We are doing a lot 
As a matter of fact, I have seen and been briefed on those films you have seen. I have talked to those Navy pilots. They followed it, and suddenly it would move in a direction faster than anything they've ever seen, Nelson told Fox 13. It's not just those couple of Navy pilots. This has happened now among a number of aviators. So there is something there. We just don't know what it is, he continued. And this is something, obviously, we've heard before and we've read in other articles. So what I did when I got into NASA a month ago, this is still Nelson speaking, I asked our chief scientist and the science directorate if they would look at it from a matter of science and see if it can shed any further light on this. Nelson said they cannot rule out the possibility a foreign adversary that has made a technology leap and may be using it to spy on U.S. national security interest. That's why we need to find out, because if there is an adversary with that kind of technology, then we definitely need to be very, very careful, he added. Nelson said he expects the Biden administration to release an unclassified version of a report relating to the sightings in a month or so. So wondering if that timeline is past the 25th of June. Well, this article came out on June 11th, so maybe he's talking about the June 25th release. Could we be waiting longer, folks? Um, The article goes on to say the New York Times said earlier this month that the report says the U.S. government cannot give a definitive explanation of the UFOs, but has found no evidence that they are linked to aliens. Hmm. Well, what do they mean by aliens? And so now we wait and we wonder. Well, there you have it, folks. That's the news for this podcast. If you want to look at the article and read it yourself, you can go to our show notes and find the link to the article there. All right. So I have a teachable moment, a correction that needs to be made that was brought to my attention. And boy, did I goof on this one. Uh, so back in episode four, the Triangles Playground, One Guy's Earth-Shattering Account, we talked about a news article called Pentagon UFO Report. They acknowledged the reality, Whistleblower says. In that article, they talked about observing UFOs flying at speeds close to 11,000 miles per hour. And I had mentioned that at that speed, those craft were doing close to Mach 2. This was way off. So basically, the speed of sound depends on many different atmospheric conditions, such as temperature, your altitude, etc. What that basically means is that there's all kinds of things that will affect when you break the sound barrier. So at 20 degrees Celsius, or about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, the speed of sound is about 767 miles per hour. So a vehicle moving at 11,000 miles per hour is doing about 14 times the speed of sound. I was just a little bit off. Just like I always say that reading is fundamental, sweetie, the zeros are fundamental too. Do not forget the zeros. (laughs) Yeah, 1,100 miles per hour versus 11,000 miles per hour. Oopsie. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and get into some shout outs. 
All right, we've got Contact in the Desert 2021 will be a virtual event held on June 25th through the 28th, but you will have over two weeks to view the event. Check out contactinthedesert.com for more details. Up next, we have the Brothers of the Serpent podcast, one of my favorites, and simply, they are two brothers that explore the mysteries of the ages, the ancients, and the modern day. Also, the Snake Bros will be our guest for our June 27th podcast. This is going to be another great conversation with a great couple of guys, and you're not going to want to miss this episode. Make sure you check that out. To our friends at the Midnight Truck Stop, hosted by Big T and Blue Knight, a very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents that so many of us have experienced while traveling along desolate highways. Give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike. Next, we go across the pond to the UK and give a shout out to Phenomena Magazine the world's most recognized e-zine of its kind. This is a free monthly publication produced by Zohar Entertainment Group and Mappet. The magazine investigates the whole realm of the strange, profound, unknown, and unexplained, delving into paranormal, UFO, cryptids, parapsychology, and Fortean events. The magazine can be downloaded every month for free in PDF format. Check out the show notes for a link and download the magazine. Oh, and you should be seeing something coming up in Phenomena magazine that includes your humble little host on this podcast. More details to follow. And we have the Lost in the Dark podcast hosted by Burton and Aaron. This is a pretty cool podcast that bills itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions, but especially music and the world of heavy metal. So if you're into paranormal investigations and loud heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal and the paranormal. What else would you expect? All right, before we get into the hot topic for tonight and our interview, drum roll, please. It is now a time for a word from our sponsors. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Join me, George Norrie, for the Worldwide Contact in the Desert Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to June 28th. Contact in the Desert is an epic weekend of adventure jam-packed with exciting explorations into UFOs, ancient civilizations, AI, crop circles, forbidden archaeology, disclosure, and the newest evidence of ongoing contact, sightings, and leading-edge science. This amazing weekend delivers more than 130 presentations and special events showcasing 67 speakers from all over the world, with two extra weeks to view your favorite leading experts, including Avi Loeb with Clyde Lewis, Linda Moulton-Howe, Paul Hellyer, John Lear, Russell Targ, David Childress, Doc Wallach, and more. With breaking articles in the New York Times and acknowledged naval sightings, and more importantly, the new release of classified documents on the day of the soft opening of Contact in the Desert, we are your source for inside information. Join us June 25th at contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets today. Make contact, contactinthedesert.com. Coming up, we have a great interview. I am so excited to have Ben from Uncharted X on the show. Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about Ben? Well, Ben Van Kirkwick is an Australian researcher, writer, and content creator now living in the U.S., he runs the UnchartedX.com website and associated YouTube channel and produces podcasts and short-form documentaries on various topics dealing with ancient mysteries and the new scientific work that has a bearing on the story of human history. After 20 years and a successful multinational career in IT, along with a Bachelor of Science from James Cook University, Ben brings a unique perspective when investigating the evidence for ancient high technology and casts such mysteries in the light of many new discoveries like those for the younger Dryas Cataclysm and the extension of the human civilization timeline. A lifelong student and fan of history, Ben has been traveling the world for decades and has filmed at many ancient sites, as well as interviewing and interacting with many of the leading authors and researchers working in this field. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please help us welcome to the podcast, Ben Van Kirkwick. All right, everybody, we are happy to introduce to the podcast. Ben from Uncharted X. Ben, welcome. Thanks, Wayne. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, it's good to good to talk with you guys. Thanks for the invite. Oh, absolutely. We are very excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, so we're just going to jump right into this and see where sure. we go. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into researching these ancient locations, such as the pyramids of Egypt, Saqqara, South America, mm. all of these places? When your bio talks about you being having a successful background in IT, so what really brought you into what do you, I guess it would be called, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this where they call this forbidden archaeology? I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's one of the terms that gets used to describe <laughs> it. Uh, I know that's, well, there's, I think, a couple of books. Is it a Michael Cremo book? Someone like that wrote a book called that. But I mean, it's more of a, I think, from a, if you're talking career, it's more of a YouTuber career. I mean, it's it's I, I lump in. I mean, there's mainstream, and then you kind of have to call everything else something. It's it's it more or less alter. I'd call it alternative. Uh, it's I, I consider it to be an alternative community mostly. Okay. Uh, not that not that it's a, it's a hard to put a, a term on it, but it's I guess certainly it's a different take on um, some of the established narratives around history, and it's 
you know, there's there's a lot of different flavors of that of that alternative, but I would probably call it something like that. But in terms of a background, yeah, I mean, I I and what I do, it's 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 more or less YouTube and um, well, and you know, a, f- a few other things, a bit of streaming here and there, and 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 just yeah, trying to share my research with people. It's that's yeah, I I, I if I, if pressed, I usually describe myself as being a YouTuber these days. I just make okay. videos on the internet. So. So what what got you into researching these uh, ancient locations? I have always been interested. I was, I mean, my mother was, we were talking earlier about, about teachers. So when my mother was a history teacher. She was always quite passionate about it. So I grew up and I went through high school. I mean, I was good at English and history. I was always interested in that and almost went that direction at university. Just, you know, I, and then, but I had another interest in IT and some other things. And I thought, well, you know, careers and money are to be made in IT, so I kind of went that way. But I never lost the interest. I was I would always read sort of traditional history books. I was very interested in in the Roman uh, Empire, and I would get the chance to travel. So part of the IT job was was the you know I, I spent a lot of time uh, been living outside of Australia now for seventeen years, lived in Asia for a couple of years, and and would travel a lot all around the world. So I'd take up weekends and a few days here and there to go and see stuff, and generally with uh, history in mind and so I was interested in, but then you know the thing that really got me into it and it was the same story you hear from a lot of people is was, was ultimately just Graham Hancock so reading his work fingerprints which I didn't actually read until in the 2000s uh, after well after it was released I mean I was still in high school when that came out uh, but but that ultimately got me into it and I, I sort of was inter- got interested in Graham's work Followed him, and I saw one of his appearances on on kind of the, I think the Rogan Experience uh, podcast. It was a great his first appearance there was just fantastic, and I, he also taught, had the whole consciousness side of to his work, which I found also very interesting. And I knew and I knew nothing about it at that time, um, so I went down that rabbit hole. But I kind of followed Graham, and then he a tweet popped up. He tweeted and said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to Peru." And Bolivia for a couple of weeks. Anyone want to come along? And I was, you know, shut up and take my money immediately. And, uh, <laughs> I, I jumped on it, and that was that was absolutely yeah. That was 2013, and so I spent a couple of weeks in Peru and Bolivia with Graham Hancock, Brian Forrester. It was a trip with him as well. I, I didn't know who Brian was at the time, and that crowd and and just it opened my eyes to to a, a lot of things, and I was just blown away because Graham did a number of presentations and. And everyone in that group was all switched on. I love these sort of tours because, you know, you almost the crowds are a little self-selecting when, when people sign up to do stuff based on authors and, and perspectives, and I've enjoyed those sort of tours. So, yeah, that really sucked me in. And then when the chance came up a couple of years later um, to join him again in Egypt, I jumped on that. So, and that was 2015 was my first trip to Egypt, and then I was done. Like, you know, I was still working and, and interested, but I, I just – progressively got more engaged and I was taking more and more time off work to travel and just absolutely fascinated by these topics and wanting to do more research. And then uh, had the harebrained scheme um, with a friend of mine in uh, while in Egypt to, to that there's, we felt that there was room for either documentary or some form of content, the new medium, you know, it was, I, I honestly thought that there was, there's so much good information. It's been around for a long time too. You know, there's guys that came before Graham as well. And this has been an idea that's been around for a long time but t- typically it's stuff that's buried in books and you have to be very engaged and interested in the topic to get to it. And I just thought there was a way, uh, there was there was room for someone to take some of those concepts from those books and combine it with a fresh look at, at these sites and then present it in that new medium. Um, and to be perfectly honest, the other thing that 
my interest in technology was was kind of the other element to this because this was about the time where you had the rise of uh, good consumer grade stabilized you know high quality video gear and particularly the gimbal stuff like I just you know you you had to spend an, a fortune on gear to get like really high quality footage but before this time but then all of a sudden there's this explosion of these you know these stabilized cameras and and uh, I think in the 4k and all the rest of it so uh, with those two things that that was where it got we we got sort of started but you know went into it not having the first clue about how to make documentaries or do anything. I'd done some video editing and things, but you just kind of end up, I think it, in YouTube and, and the internet video is kind of a natural progression because I do want to write a book and that that's, you know, I've, I've been working on that, but uh, yeah, nonfiction's tough. You, you have to, you have yeah. to either write the best book or you have to create an audience. So, you know, YouTube, it's a natural place to start then building an audience and then, you know, I couldn't indefinitely just sustain myself. I eventually quit job, quit, quit my work to go do this. We spent a couple of years trying to get a library of um, material, traveling around, filming in a lot of places. I still use a lot of that material. I've been traveling obviously since then. But uh, and then you know, you just, I just, I just, it, you you get there with like, well, you need to make it sustainable and stuff, and that's that YouTube model. Like I, you know, it's I, I originally thought let's make a documentary, but I mean, how do you make a documentary? Right. <laughs> You know, it's the whole the whole Hollywood and just film studios and selling film, and that's a whole different world. So, yeah. But that was that's the long way around of getting into it. There was Hancock, and then my own interest, and then we just the opportunity came up to try it out, and I tried it out, and I've and it's it's kind of gotten to a point where it's relatively sustainable, and I'm gonna you know, ride the ship until it sinks, more or less. I really enjoy it. I uh, I um I feel very privileged to get to do something like this that I am very um. I very much enjoy doing, and then I, I have, I'm just stunned, and I have a lot, of, a lot of gratitude for the people that choose to support me because it's, you know, you, you have to. It's not just YouTube, and I don't, I'm not like that big on YouTube where it's sustainable purely through YouTube. So uh, that's why I push like the value for value model, and um, you know, it's uh, my long well, suffering also, wife as well. Yeah. Well, you've also yeah. started on Twitch. I think is really cool because people get to come in and see, like I come into your Twitch channels and, and watch your work and, and people can see what it's like in the time that you have to invest Thanks. to make these videos. And these videos, by the way, everybody are not just shot with a phone and really bad audio. And this, these are high quality. I thought they were real documentaries, not that they're not real documentaries, but when I first ran into them, I think the first video I ever saw was the boxes at Saqqara uh -huh. and uh, yeah, was just blown topic. away because nobody ever talks about these things that are there. And uh, right. that, that, that's why I think there, there's a, there's a waking knowledge out there for people to mm. learn about this stuff. And I think you're, you and uh, is it Jimmy from brighter insight? Is that bright insight? Yep. Bright insight. Right. Yep. So uh, some great stuff out there. Um, so Mike, an another question I had for you off of uh, your bio, it talks about your interest in high technology in ancient times. Now, usually mm. when people say something like that, immediately people go to lasers, anti-gravity machines, and all of this stuff. Can you give us the definition of what you mean by uh, high technology. 
Yeah, that's that's actually. A, I should probably try to define that at some point in in, in my work as well, because I, I don't I don't typically mean anything specific. What I am talking about with with uh, mostly what I'm in, I investigate is it's the evidence for technology that's generally way beyond what um, what we what the dynastic Egyptians and and other ancient cultures as we know them would have been capable of with the the primitive tools and capabilities. Uh, that we know that they had, and and I say primitive, it's relative to to us today, I guess, and that's that's the general view that you know mainstream history takes on them. We we have it's a little bit of the arrogance of anthropology in general is is you have to kind of take yourself up and look and be able to and and consider yourself superior to be able to judge and 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 uh, determine the capabilities of previous civilizations or other people. These things uh, happen, but in general, it's it's the evidence for 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 objects, and I think for for technology that. The high technology that was required to manufacture and make a lot of these things and well beyond sort of the hand tools, copper chisels, pounding stones, flint knives, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, it's it's in that direction. But and I do include uh, some of those things you mentioned, like I, as possibilities. One of the things that I usually am pretty clear about is that a lot of this stuff I'm, and it's sort of this like, what were the pyramids, if they were functional, what were they for? I don't speculate right. a lot. I do, and I, when I do speculate, I try to be real clear about it, but I'm not kind of claiming that I know what it was or how it was done. Mostly what I'm trying to show is this, that our established story of history that explains it is incorrect. Like it's, it's, and I think it's demonstrably and provably incorrect um, when you get into some of the details of the engineering and the objects and you talk to the experts, the actual experts with construction and engineering and stone carving and stone masonry, those types of things. Um, that's, one of the bugbears I have with, I guess, mainstream archaeology and Egyptology in particular is, is that it's, if something is ancient, then all of a sudden that that makes the archaeologist the expert on it, it's, and they kind of claim expertise over that entire domain of everything. But in right. reality, that we should be talking to engineers about engineering problems and, and construction experts about the construction problems and so on and so forth with stone carvers, because you know it's the I think I mentioned this in my last video. You you don't ask the archaeologist to design the chair that he's sitting in. Um, but if it's an ancient chair, he's going to tell you that he knows best how it was built. And that's one of the other real interesting elements to it for me is that, you know, talking to experts and it's almost almost invariably, I enjoy going to Egypt with with engineers and people that really understand what some of this stuff takes. And they just, more often than not, they'll just, they'll find the orthodox explanations for things to be entirely laughable. Now, I mm-hmm. some of it boggles the mind too, and I'm not ruling out things like you know, anti-gravity in the past. Correct. In fact, I... I do go so far as to as to say that I think a lot of these objects were functional, uh, and again, I think they were functional before history as we know it ever arose. But what that function is is up to speculation. You know, Chris Dunn's got a great theory on the on the on the Giza pyramids as a power plant. I think that's and and his theory kind of encompasses all of the elements of it. I think it's a great it's a great theory, but it's still kind of looking at it from within our perspective of technology and and, right. and perspective. I, I spent a lot of time trying to explain perspective on technology and my backgrounds in technology as a technologist. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a simple exercise to, to, to think about the context and that, and try to understand how we look at things and how our perspective shapes what we see and how we judge it. And you, all you have to do is ask yourself is, you know, do you think we'll know more about the world in a hundred years, in a thousand years? 
you could consider the rate of technological advance since like the 80s, which a lot of people I'm sure remember, like the pre-internet and then into the internet and phones and everything. Like there's a huge, tremendous um, rate of knowledge and increase, a ramp that we're on as a species, and I'm sure that we'll know more. So it stands to reason that there are answers and things that are outside of our understanding, outside of our technological domain. You know, we we have this electrochemical approach to problem solving as a species. And I think there are other methods and other technological domains that I think some of these answers and some of these sites may well fit into. And my whole point on all of this is, is I think we should be approaching a lot of these mysteries and these obvious contradictions to, to the story of history with open minds and using our technology, using our capability to investigate them to the to the best extent that we can. And you have to be open to some of these concepts to do that. But because we're not, and in general, Orthodox history, Orthodox Egyptology and archaeology just dismisses any claims of advanced technology, they just won't look into it. Like you just, you can't have that discussion. It just gets dismissed. And they, yeah, they don't stop go and, the conversation. Yeah. And they don't go and, and, and investigate it. Like it's, it boggles my brain to the, to this day, as far as I know, Nobody has taken a, a high-definition LiDAR scanner or, and, and scanned some of these objects. Like, actually, let's determine the degree of precision that is in these things once and for all. Let's drag a ground-penetrating radar across all of the Giza Plateau. You know, we just we don't do it. And, I mean, we were on, I was on tour last year in, uh, when was it, November, December, and, you know, some of our uh, people in our group had the latest iPhone, which has you know, a light, a basic LIDAR scanning capability. It's not too bad. It's down to a couple millimeter of definition, but it's no professional piece of equipment. And I think we were probably the first group to actually 3D scan some of those boxes in the Serapium. I mean, oh, I'll have wow. some of those scans. But, and they're not, you know, again, what we need is the real high definition scans from like the professional level gear. But that seems such like a layup to me. Like, why don't we go and define these things and scan them and try and learn some more about them? But it doesn't happen. So a lot of my 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 work is trying to get at the truth by spreading the knowledge that, hey, a lot of this stuff's way more advanced than we can explain within the context of our current version of history. Why don't we try and get to the truth by investigating it with an open mind? Yeah, and I do want to revisit that uh, the whole of resisting any kind of new ideas because of the mm -hmm. orthodoxy of uh, the Egyptologist and things like that. I do want to revisit that here in a, in a sure. few minutes. What about your first trip you, to an ancient site? Was that with Graham Hancock? And what were your first impressions when you, when you saw the, the ancient, yeah, ancient site? Which one? Anything? Uh, your first one. Your very first, first one. one? Yeah. I think what that might have been, it was Rome or it was China. Like there was, and parts of China, it depends what you mean by ancient as well. Like there's, I think uh, there's, I, I've been fascinated by history I, I, and, and, you know, ancient is, I think there's various flavors of it. What, what I have found to be quite remarkable, like even, I mean, Rome, I love Rome and I, I very much enjoyed uh, spending time around there and, and looking at it, but there's a, there's a connection to that culture that we can make sense of and imagine ourselves being part of mm. that you, that you that isn't there when you look at some of the stuff in South America for example or Egypt and there's other and the real megalithic stuff I, I think mega, the megalithic stuff is what is is truly fascinating to me because it's so alien to our perspective and that's the thing people if you've never been to Egypt when you get to Egypt and you find yourself up on the Giza plateau there's this 
almost an escapism that happens. It, it takes you out of your world because it's so alien to our way of life and, and what we are generally looking at. And you just, and the size of everything's amazing, but it really, and similar in South America, when you really kind of sit there and, and look at some of these sites like Sacsayhuaman or whatever, it, and it just, there's a, there's a, it takes you away from that, from that modern world. It's so, it's so vastly different that it's interesting. Um, but the first, like that, I guess my first megalithic stuff was, unless you, you know, this China or uh, or uh, or Rome would count, probably South America in in twenty thirteen. Um, was that when you I've went been back with there a number of times? Yeah, it was. That was my okay. first trip down to Peru and Bolivia. Yep. And what was the first site that you you stepped out on that megalithic site and blew you away? Uh I mean, Sacsayhuaman, probably. I mean, yeah. there was, we, we hit a couple, and that's, you know, it's easy to get to. You, you sort of fly into Cusco and, and drive up there, or, or you can just about walk up there, to be honest. Um, and I think that was probably one of the earlier, earlier spots that we got to. But there's a number of highlights in South America. There's a lot of different sites to see. Um, a couple of lesser known ones that I've always been a big fan of Napa Huaca, sometimes also called Napa Inglesia, which is this little, ca- little cave. It's a very re- remote spot that not many people visit, um, but has some of the most astonishing carved bluestone, which is granite um, artifacts in it. There's, and it's, it, it actually shares some angles and some similarities with the Great Pyramid. Uh, very megalithic, also a very good example of how uh, the later cultures, the Inca, would, would respect and revere and replicate some of the, the, the megalithic work. Uh, and I kind of, to preface that, I, I firmly believe that the... Uh, the, there was a megalithic culture that existed long ago in South America, and then a huge gap of time, post cataclysm, likely um, took place where there wasn't very many people. But when the Inca rolled into that part of Peru, they from the south they came up. I think they found, you know, abandoned megalithic, uh, an abandoned megalithic city in Cusco, and then they they settled there and they set that as their kind of seat of power, and they renovated and reused a lot of this stuff and built on top of it. And I think you, the evidence for that type of renovation work is is very evident in in south america um okay yeah it's 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 insane but yeah probably saxon was probably one of the first but there's a whole bunch of them around cusco and cusco itself is is um is an an amazing city uh it's full of megalithic stuff right um okay um moving back to egypt the the boxes at or boxes they call it tombs right but saqqara sarcophagus sarcophagi yeah Yeah. at the what is known as the serapium Mm -hmm. um can you give us a little bit of information about what your research revealed with those uh things and if anybody doesn't know what i'm talking about this is where you got to go to unchartedx.com and you got to watch these videos so, you know, being an audio podcast, everybody, I know it's difficult to to probably picture these in your brain without any common reference, but go to his videos and check these things out for sure. But Ben, yeah, uh, there, there's there is a whole there's yeah, I've got a whole series on my YouTube, um, like a playlist of, of videos about the Serapium. It is my favorite site in Egypt. It's a remarkable site. And, and again, not that many people visit. It was shut for a long time. Mm-hmm. undergoing renovations from the department of antiquities which is cool but it's at a high level it's there's nothing to see on the surface it's an underground uh, series of massive galleries and chambers cut into the limestone bedrock at saqqara it's uh it's a little bit away from the regular uh, part of saqqara the 
the step pyramid and Joe's uh, pyramid and a few of the others. It's it's in a, it's off on its own and a little bit off to the corner. It's still part of Saqqara, but it's a huge underground complex. And I'm talking when I say you know underground galleries, these aren't little tunnels. You could drive a Volkswagen down these tunnels. Right. They're huge arcing avenues with these massive alcoves, sunken alcoves that are staggered off to the sides of these tunnels. There's a whole series of these of these main galleries, uh, and in these galleries. Uh, in fact, on the whole side, there's 24 of them. They're these the the biggest single piece granite boxes. And well, in fact, there's you know the, the cyanite and granodiorite, and there's a number of different materials. But in general, extremely hard stone. These are single piece, massive, massive boxes that uh, combined with their lids, some of them weigh up to around 100 tons. Uh, just and and they show no end um, uh, no end of signatures of of very advanced construction and manufacturing techniques, uh, very high degrees of precision. There's evidence for machining on these lids. They're polished down to a mirror finish. Um, and, and I should say that a lot of it's, I mean, I've been researching the site and the work of others, and I've done some of my own little bits of measuring, but but far and away, you know, I stand on the shoulders of other people that have actually done the small amount of, of, of kind of metrology that we have on this site, guys like uh, Chris Dunn, for example, um, I also, you know, I reference a lot of the, the archaeologists from the past, guys like Flinders Petrie. But Chris Dunn is kind of, I, I consider him to be somewhat of like Flinders Petrie's modern successor in terms of him being an engineer that takes an engineering approach to, to these things. And he's done quite a bit of uh, work looking at these at these boxes. And some of their features are, are absolutely insane. Like there's, you know, you have you have these huge, big, flat wall surfaces that are that are flat and perfectly flat to within thousands of an inch. You have, you know, the 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 angles, so the right angle um, between like the a side wall and a back wall in these boxes, a perfect ninety degrees, again to within thousands of an inch, measured with with sort of high uh, high precision tools, things like straight edges and precision squares. Uh, and this this becomes an interesting relative geometry challenge too, because the boxes are perfect end-to-end so in some cases there's any boxes i mean you're talking about internal walls that are 10 feet apart on like the 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 long axis and those walls are perfectly perpendicular with each other and flat and it's just and again remember this is a single piece box it was carved from a single piece of stone right hollowed out and then shaped and if you screw up anywhere you've got to you know you've got to change the geometry of the whole box there's there's we could spend two hours just talking about these boxes (laughs) and 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 in my videos i've probably got more than two hours talking about them but yeah um, they're remarkable bits of evidence for for ancient high technology, I think, and, and advanced capability. Because you, there's really, I, I consider there's a couple of like main aspects to this, and these are, you know, there's there's the obvious, there's the evidence for you. You kind of have all three signs that I consider as as main signs for something being um, requiring a, a form of advanced technology. And, and the first one is the evidence for machining. So we actually have tool marks on on summer objects around Egypt, things like circular saws, uh, high-speed tubular drills, and and advanced forms of cutting through the stone. Those are existent. I think those can't be explained with the, the, the regular methods. I don't believe anybody's shown that they can. And we have a little bit of that in some of these boxes, although in most cases the boxes in the Serapium have been polished to a point where you don't have any marks left on them at all. The other, the other piece of evidence is, is precision, and these certainly have that. Uh, in spades, really, you, you can spend a lot of time talking about the various aspects of high precision. And again, you, you don't, this is stuff that re, that we would struggle to make, you know, we can make with computer guided tools today uh, to get to those levels of precision. But 
you just simply can't achieve some of these levels of precision with with hand tools. And then the third aspect that I think is a real indicator is uh, the sheer size and mass of some of these objects. Now, it is possible to move 100 tons outside and, and with primitive methods, but you have a real challenge in the Serapium because, I mean, the biggest box in here, you've got less than a foot of clearance in the tunnels. You simply cannot fit the manpower in there to, to move that. We've, and in, in my videos, we go through some of the math, uh, how these boxes got into these chambers and then they're not even just in these alcoves are sunken alcoves. So they're actually off the main path that they, they drop down about six feet and they're perfectly centered in these, in these alcoves, all 24 of them. Um, how they got down in there is an absolute mystery and nobody's been able to sufficiently explain it. You certainly couldn't do it with any form of manual labor and absolutely couldn't do it with the methods that we know the ancient Egyptians used because they, you know, they, they weren't big users of animals and, and they, you know, not a lot of, uh even early on like they weren't even supposed to have had access to the wheel um so there's a there's a lot of mystery to the serapium and i think it's i think it's just chock-a-block full of like smoking gun proof for for ancient high technology plus you know what is it they're not no one's no one's found anything in these boxes they were they were all found open when it was discovered i think in 18 the 1850s by august marriott except for one box which was sealed and closed he'd used dynamite on it to blow it up is that the one that's broken in the corner <laughs> Yeah, the big busted one that's in yeah. the corner. And he absolutely nothing on the inside. So Right. Uh, you know, nobody's found anything on there. There's there's one box that's got a bunch of writing on it that's a bunch of chicken scratch, which is a whole other topic that I get into, that the writing right. doesn't remotely match the, the technology of the boxes, but that's how they date the site. It's based on this crappy writing that's basically been the box has been vandalized, like, but that's yeah. 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 Now, what's uh, what does the orthodoxy say about uh, what these were? Well, it's they're they're labelled as bull sarcophagi, so so for the Apis bull, uh, so, which was a sacred creature to the dynastic Egyptians, and they they were known to mummify and and bury bulls. Uh, and there's been even in like the second pyramid in one of the in the box in there, they found bull bones. They found plenty of, and they've got plenty of of mummified Apis bulls. However, it's important with the Serapium to realize that no bull remains or any bones, there's no bull in the Serapium. <laughs> what, what they did find nearby is, is, a, is an area called the Lesser Galleries, which doesn't connect to the Serapium. It is a much like more primitive set of tunnels, something that's totally doable by the dynastic Egyptians. And in those tunnels, they found wooden crates with uh, bull bones in them, and okay. it's nearby. And so they kind of smear this explanation of – there's also – it also has something to do with the name. There's there's an Apis bull. There, there's a there's I have a video with Yusuf talking through the translation and and how I think some of the the glyphs that are on there help them determine or at least make the judgment that these are these are bull um bull sarcophagi, which is absolute nonsense. Uh, there's really no proof for it, and and it's just such a silly idea. Like this is we have never made anything like this in our culture, and in fact, Chris Dunn right. asked, you know, he asked granite companies to make them, and they just apart from the absolutely astronomical cost of trying to move and transport and get a hundred ton, this is a finished hundred. You know, you got to start with a 150 ton block, if not more, it, they just wouldn't do it. And the only way they would do it is well, we'll make five slabs and bolt them together. Like you remember part of this right. past, part of the interesting thing here is that these are single piece boxes, uh, not bolted together. So, and, and they're perfect on the inside. Like it almost seems to me that, there was more emphasis placed on the insides of these boxes being utterly perfect, reflective, perfect flat surfaces, 
uh, and just you know, shine to a mirror finish. And you know, it, this just doesn't make sense if you're making a a bull coffin like you could, and also you could fit probably ten bulls in each of these each of the, like ten ten mummified bulls in these in these boxes. They're 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 huge. And, and doesn't uh, wouldn't wouldn't the precision of those boxes on the inside scream that there was some type of a function not just mm-hmm. as a a a a, ho- a holding place for a bunch of dead bulls you know it, right it, yeah it, it, go it's ahead. something i <laughs> i have a whole video on precision and i dive in it's an interesting topic because there is absolutely a relation and i contend and i think this is and engineers and people that understand this uh, do as well. I'm sure there is a relationship between precision and function. You, you, there's there is a cost to developing precision, and and it, and with the degree of precision that we're talking about with these boxes, it's a prohibitive cost. It's ex- extremely expensive to develop that capability to be able to do this type of precise work. Therefore, you only ever do it in order to to gain some sort of functional return. There's an, any number of examples. Like there's a fantastic book about. Uh, I forget. I've got it here somewhere about precision. That's and and how you know precision sort of shaped the modern world. And it it all a lot of it got started with things like watchmaking and even cannon cannon manufacture, naval cannons. We we eventually got to the point of being like realizing that you had to be pretty precise with how you bored those things out, and it had a massive impact on on performance. And then also you know accurate timekeeping. Precision has shaped the modern world, but we only do it for the return of a function like you know good example is uh microprocessors uh integrated circuits like we're getting down to like three nanometer you know process now it's just incredible and it costs billions and billions of dollars to develop this capability but we only do it because there's a massive return in, in shrinking the power footprint down to that size so that's 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 one thing i contend is that is there's a degree of precision in this stuff indicates that there is some function or at least there was a function that was being chased in order to develop that capability because once we have the capability say you, once your manufacturing process develops capability to deliver these sort of precision results then that's just what it delivers so a good example is like we vehicles today like we've just panel gaps from american cars in the 60s to what they are now is there and you guys are in detroit you're probably well aware of it like this you know it's We've gotten far more precise in this stuff, and that's because our manufacturing capabilities have gotten better. Uh, and again, that we've done that because there's a we've been chasing a specific um, return on on some sort of function. So yeah, I right. think I absolutely think that this place was functional. I had no idea what it was for. There's a lot of other clues that you can go through in the in how that it was seemed to be functional in that it was very very important to the builders of this that that these boxes were solid. There was no cracks in them. And they would go to the extent of scoot. So, you know, a lot of these stones have small cracks on the surface. They would scoop out cracks. They would empty cracks. So a lot of these boxes have these like egg-shaped or eggshell sort of divots dug into them and chunks missing from them on the outsides. None of this on the inside, by the way. On the outsides, they have all these divots dug into them. And all of these non-flat surfaces are also perfectly polished, which must have been an absolute pain in the butt, unless you had some easy way of polishing it. But I think they were chasing that so they could they just there wasn't any cracks. And there's there's a huge box that's in an off-limits area of this site that I've been into. One of the biggest boxes there, and it's kind of parked in this back corner. It's not finished. And I think it was parked there because it has this giant crack in it. And they went, well, it's cracked. We can't use it. Which is, of course, if, if you're just burying bulls in it and you're closing it up, who cares if it's got a few cracks in it? Like right. even 
small cracks you can't see. So that's another clue that there was some functionality required. These boxes would, would had to be solid and could withstand vibration perhaps. I don't know. They're also faceted in terms, like I mean, like flat surfaces, like a gemstone that they're cut in, in all these different uh, flat angles. So there's these sharp corners on them. Uh, not they're not necessarily symmetrical or anything, but they they seem to have been faceted for some reason. Um, and another interesting aspect to the site that people don't realize is that all of the galleries there's no two boxes facing each other; they're all offset. So there's there's no two chambers that are directly opposing each other. It's all very much a staggered array uh, of, of where these boxes are located. So yeah, there's a lot to suggest that it's functional. I just um, I'd really, I really, I have, I don't know what that function was, but I'm, I am fairly convinced that it, it, it was functional at some point, and it, it, that was its, that was its intent, its purpose. Right. Looking today, you just released a video on the second pyramid. Mm-hmm. Can you give us kind of a, our audience, a high level overview of what that video is about? Sure. Yeah, that's. I'm so. It's always a relief to get a video out. Um, and it, you know, I've been working on this one for a couple of months, and it's something I've been thinking about for a few years, actually. The the middle pyramid. So, the second pyramid, the middle pyramid, Kafre Kefren's pyramid. Mountain of the it. West. Is that right? Mountain too? of the West. That's another yeah. term. Yeah, that's. It's been known as. It was actually known as the Great Pyramid as well at one point. Um, although the name switched over to the to the Great Pyramid as we know it. But um, yeah. So I I I think there's a lot. So one of the things people just assume and you read in the book, oh, this was built by Kafra. And Kafra also um, is the guy that supposedly built the, the Sphinx and everything. And it's, in fact, what's interesting about it, people, not a, I guess not everybody knows, but pyramids don't stand alone. They have a complex. And in the case of, and th- these complex includes a lot of a lot of other buildings and structures. And in the case of the middle pyramid, because it sits in the middle of the Great Pyramid and the third, I guess, the smaller pyramid that's attributed to Menkara, uh, these are all fourth dynasty pyramids. These are all supposedly like one generation after the other guys that built them too. Um, the middle pyramids complex includes the very famous Sphinx and uh, uh, the Valley Temple that is like some of the highlights that you'll see if you go to Egypt. And these are massively megalithic structures. It also includes the causeway, the main huge causeway that's, you know, it's a, it's 500 meters long that connects the, the the pyramid to uh, the Sphinx and the Valley Temple. And there's another megalithic structure up there with the pyramid called the Pyramid Temple, uh, also called the Mortuary Temple, because uh, it's all supposedly a tomb. But the what's interesting about the Middle Pyramid is the dating and the attribution to Kafra is actually there's very little to, that suggests that. And and this is, you know, there's not a single hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic mark on the pyramid. No mummies have been found. Uh, so it's I the video is all about an investigation into it because I think there's a lot to, to suggest that you know uh, not only do I think that the middle pyramid likely came before the great pyramid which is contrary to I guess the orthodox story of history which says that the great pyramid the biggest one the best one was the first one which is of course how you know <laughs> civilizations work and technology progresses sure. right? we do our best work up front um, and then and then don't ever manage to repeat it which is which is the great contradiction of the story of ancient Egypt altogether, actually. Uh, the Old Kingdom, they, they popped out of nowhere and, and made everything incredibly well and then just declined for 3,000 years, it, which is absolutely the opposite to how almost, well, every other civilization has ever worked. But, uh, you know, I think that the that pyramid complex may have been there 
uh, before the Great Pyramid, and I also think it's 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 like quite likely far older than uh, the dynastic Egyptian civilization. And we, I run through a lot of the different signs that that point to that, some of the evidence for it, and kind of make the case. But it's it's a good it's a good dig into some of the structures, and there's a few things up there that people may not realize. Uh, some of the engineering features of that pyramid are astonishing. Um, uh, one of my favorite things about it is that it's actually been built into the side of a sloping hillside. So, you know, that one of the craziest parts of the whole story of history, which is is the idea that they, you know, these pyramids took twenty years to build, uh, and it's 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 kind of ridiculous when you when you start to do the math on that, like how many blocks there were. It's like two and a half million blocks, and it's you know more than five million tons of stone and. And a lot of this, and on the middle pyramid, you've got a lot of granite that it was all cased in granite. Talking about tens of thousands of tons of granite, and all that stuff has to come from more than five hundred miles away, and it works out to something like one block every two minutes for a sustained period of twenty years. And that's just assuming you build the pyramid, right? But the and the the thing is, you've probably got years, if not a decade, worth of work in the bedrock before you can build this pyramid, because these guys had to carve out a massive enclosure that on one end is thirty plus feet deep, and then flatten the ground. And then on the on the uh, on the eastern side, build it up. So they had to put these huge foundation tiles in the ground to, to level the ground again on the on the on the downslope side. And some of these foundation tiles are probably 150, 200 tons, and they all fit together like this perfect <laughs> three dimensional jigsaw. And so we look at a lot of those features. There's a lot of engineering that 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 is that is of interest in this in the second pyramid. And uh, yeah, the, my next video, well, at some point here, will be part two to that because I in an hour managed to do about half of the things that I, I wanted to do. So it was all done with, uh, it was all done with hammers, <laughs> copper chisels and uh, right. pounding no stones, right? Yep. Diorite <laughs> pounders, copper chisels and, and flint, flint chisels too. So oh, it man. is a, I like to make fun of the copper chisel thing. It's just a, because copper chisels won't do anything to granite. Um, but it, to be truthful, that that flint was another uh, another element that was used, and that you know you can slowly work away at. at you typically you find a, a harder tool, but yeah, no iron, no steel, uh, no, yeah, okay, and even so, some of the even, even some steel and iron's not going to do much to some of that granite that's up there, right? Because, and then diorite, and let alone the other harder stones, cyanide. And when you're talking about like limestone, okay, so limestone is a sedimentary rock. It's not the hardest, yep. and you can break through it, and you can saw through it in certain ways. But when you get to granite and you get to hmm. statues that are hmm. anatomically correct beyond uh, what you could possibly do with a hmm. chisel or the the work that's done, and I think uh, Johanna, which um, we're going to have on the podcast uh, later this month, cool. she shows a video and talks about the the bowls and the schist disc, I believe, mm-hmm. and yeah. the, all of the the, the and, and saying it's pottery is is incorrect because yeah. that that would give you the impression that somebody's got some clay on a spinning tabletop and you're manipulating it while it's wet these are granite granite's like on Mo's hardness scale of like 0 to 10 is somewhere close to 8 or 9 to 7 you know? yeah 6 or, or yeah, 7 yeah so yeah. Or i'm thinking a corundum but there's a corundum uh, jar in there as well so the, yeah. i and i've i've got videos on the same topics okay and, I'm well familiar with the the evidence in the in the Egyptian museum, and they're and perfect. Are, they're, 
Yeah, so utterly symmetrical. I have a one of my recent videos was there about the the precision stone vases, and particularly the step pyramid, because you know forty thousand of these were found, or more actually than forty thousand were found beneath the step pyramid, which is a third dynasty structure. So again, the earliest parts of the Egyptian right uh, time frame. In fact, the, the schist disc, which is, I mean, very well known, notorious almost uh, as a, as a people sort of interpret it and think it's made for all sorts of different functions. I think it's possible it was made to make rope, but it, it, some people think it's an acoustic device or whatever Whatever you think it is, there's no question that it's a remarkable piece of stone carving and absolutely impossible to do by hand. Like it's the, it's like this crazy shape with these folded wings and this, this outer edge. It's actually It was found broken. They did fix it. They've done a pretty good job of fixing it. Um, but that thing... People don't realize it's a that was found in a first dynasty tomb, like a first dynasty burial. And I, I kind of make the point in one of my videos it's like, imagine, and as I'm sure happens, imagine that there's a black market trade in some of these antiquities, which I'm sure there is. And some oh, people absolutely. probably have these vases, they've got stuff in their in their in their private collection. Some rich guy in Germany or something, and he's and he dies, and he's like been passionate about this stuff forever. So he gets buried in a mausoleum somewhere with his treasures that are in vastly ancient. They're like fourth, third dynasty Egyptian. Uh, and then our civilization ends. And five, 10,000 years later, somebody else digs him up and they find this guy with those bowls. Right. They're going to probably think that he made them or he had them made. Like old things are <laughs> precious. Like I, I think it's, yeah. it's perfectly reasonable to, to think that some of these objects may well have been inherited and already vastly ancient when they were buried with the nobility in the tombs that we found them in today. Like, I think that's not at all unreasonable, uh, but it just kind of gets dismissed because it's like, no, nah, that's ours. And you, you kind of have the same, the same problem with a lot of these jars where the writing is just this chicken scratch that doesn't yes. match the, the precision and perfect nature of the object itself, which you know, obviously, uh, you have the ability to make straight lines and, and sharp angles and polish the stone because it's the evidence is right there on the object. But those are never characteristics that we see in the writing on some of these old, older objects. Um, but yeah, it's yeah, the museum's chock full of that stuff, and it's pretty funny because they do they do have these uh, these jars, these granite corundum cyanide. I mean, they're made from a thousand different types of stone. Almost it feels like in they've got them in the in the display cabinets next to clay pottery. Like it's literally lined right up next to this super primitive pottery stuff. And I, I mean, one of my favorite little objects in the museum is this little tube. It's a tube of lapis lazuli, which is quite a difficult stone. In fact, there's not really any known quarries for this in uh, in Egypt. It must have come from somewhere else, perhaps Russia. There's a lot of stone like that, actually. So stuff has been traded and come in from a distance. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it's labeled, it's in a, it's in a, it's in a, it's in a, case it's got this gold sheath and it's this hollow perfectly machined sort of little tube of lapis lazuli very much a, a a precision object and it's in this it's in this display case with bone ornaments and beads and <laughs> little chunks of pottery and it's simply just labeled pre-dynastic because it was found in a pre-dynastic uh tomb well they're taking burial. advantage they're taking advantage of people's ignorance that you know they yeah. don't understand the hardness of these materials they don't understand how difficult mm -hmm it can be to work these materials. And when you see a granite pot that is very small <laughs> and perfect right next to a piece of clay pottery. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's the well, same it's, thing. Yeah. And it's, it comes back to the, some of the problems with the way that, that we determine the story of history. And, and really this is right. 
an institutional problem because it's there the egyptology in general does not concern itself with the manufacturing and how these things were made they just don't they're not that's not their expertise i mean egyptology it's it's not a hard science it's closer to like language studies and arts i mean it is and, and they to give everyone the credit they do a fantastic job of understanding the dynastic egyptian civilization daily life how it functioned like their afterlife we we know a tremendous amount thanks to egyptology and the writing and all this interpretation but these guys don't really concern themselves with the manufacturing of these objects and they'll say so like they're more concerned with what's written on them and that's that's mm-hmm. kind of how we go and and i that's one right. of my major my major points is that the just becomes super obvious once you, you start looking and seeing it that the technology of the writing just doesn't match the technology that's evident in the objects themselves and it's very difficult to then say that the same person did them and that really opens up that possibility that some of these objects are old or they've been inherited and then later claimed and written on which we know happened also like this is a, a known practice in dynastic egypt particularly in the the middle kingdom with guys like ramses ii and his son meron patar they were notorious for taking older statues and older monuments. And remember, this is thousands of years older than them, back to the old kingdom. And they would sort of chisel off those names and put their own names on there. And there's no end of examples yep. and evidence for this. And in a lot of cases, we just determine that, no, no, that's that's Ramses' statue. It's a statue of him. But there's, you know, it's clearly evident that he's there's these other names that have then been figured out were on here. And they were, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years older than him. But it's just... We just don't. There's this. There's a lacking element of of technology and, and a, a lack of willingness to, I think, to engage in some of these these discussions in in Orthodox Egyptology, and I think yeah, it's it is it's understandable to some degree, but it it's it's a real there's a real blinkered situation going on with that at the moment, and you can extend it to beyond technology to things like adjacent fields of science, um, like they just ignore the evidence that comes to us now from genetics research they ignore the evidence that comes to us from you know catastrophism and and climate history the younger dryas the extension of the human timeline all these things that should be having a dramatic impact on the story of our past kind of just get ignored because of their implications and it's a, it's right. the same thing with the technology they have such strong implications for the story of history that i think a lot of these guys feel threatened by it honestly because you, i i often equate the mainstream um archaeology and and history story to to it's like religion it's the, the a lot of these guys that have tenure they have authority the, the the professors they write the textbooks they're an expert at a story it's it's a loose interpretation of incomplete evidence that's what history is we we we, we have to we should always be looking for new evidence and trying to see how this affects it's like a murder trial that never ends right but in the same way that you know priests are the expert on a story in the bible or that they're the you know that's where and their their whole authority their their sense of personal power and and sense of self is tied up in this story and their place is the expert on it i think that's where a lot of these tenured sort of ivory tower academics that scoff and look down their noses at anything alternative that it's the same thing they're the yes. experts at the story and if you start threatening the story you'll start to threaten threaten them and that's why you get the whole lack of engagement and they don't want to talk about it and it's very difficult to to have those any sort of rational debate or discussion and that's just the situation and then it gets exacerbated by the nature of the internet and the fact that you know any idiot on there like me can say stuff now <laughs> <laughs> um, and you end up with a very defensive um, establishment field that that just dismiss stuff and yes i always i do also like to point out that this hasn't always been the case i mean guys like petrie and 
Belzoni and even Mariette and the guys that were really enthusiastic with Dynamite before them, um, they knew when they were and and quite often admitted when they were looking at stuff they didn't understand or they thought was vastly ancient, didn't match the story of history, and they'd say so. And I think one of the reasons for that is is that because the only pushback and the, their discussions all happened in in the, the halls of academia, like with their colleagues in these societies and and in their books and now it's this global conversation where you've got a big audience in the internet and there's no there's no gatekeeping function the, the discussion's happening outside of academia in a lot of ways right. so uh i think all of that lends to this defensive posture and um lack of sort of progress with uh with the with the orthodox story despite this what i would consider to be overwhelming evidence that you know we need to reevaluate the whole story of human history on this planet yeah, well, it, you know, it's it's very similar to, you know, being an earth science teacher. So, you know, I've studied mm-hmm. everything to do with earth science. I mean, it's a very difficult, you know, geophysical yeah. field to get into and teach astronomy of the whole nine yards. And where we see a good example of that in my discipline is with Alfred Wegener and him looking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming up with uh, plate tectonics. This guy looked at the maps and said, you know, it looks like the continents were once together, right? Like a puzzle piece. It's right there. And they laughed him out of everything. And he ended Mm -hmm. up smoking himself to death because the only job he could get was as like a weatherman in uh, above the Arctic circle because nobody Mm -hmm. would touch him. Nobody would listen to him. And the only reason for that is is because they asked him, okay, if these plates are moving around that you're talking about your puzzle pieces, how are they moving? And at that time, the technology did not exist to understand about convection currents down in the mantle and right. how that could move. And, and and they destroyed his career, you know? Yeah. And yeah. we Familiar see the story. same kind of thing now, except we have the internet and people like you putting videos together and showing everybody out there this evidence. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because in my mind, you know, we cover everything on this podcast, uh, forbidden archeology, span you know, uh, uh, whatever UFOs, paranormal conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. And, and I'm not going to say this, that I think this is a, a written down plan of like a conspiracy theory, but I heard and I do want to preface this with saying, I did want to ask you about the Sphinx and the enclosure and the Osiris shaft, but I'm going to drop that because we do need to get into some UFO stuff here. And I know your time is limited, but I want to, I want to ask you this. So I want to lead into this next question by saying something that I heard another podcaster say, um, and this is basically what he said. He said, institutions have at their primary function, self-preservation, be it economic, financial, corporate, scientific, political, or anything else. So with that being said, what kind of pushback have you received from the establishment or institutions that act as gatekeepers of knowledge and as they're holding handfuls of Egyptian sand and it runs through their fingers that they can't control it. 
we see them lashing out more and more. So what kind of personal uh, things have you had to deal with? Uh, yeah, it's a, actually a good comment. And that's, I've often said something similar, which is the nature of establishment is to resist change. I mean, that's just its nature. And, and you can extend that to institution as well. Like that self-preservation quote, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. And it's very, it's very true. And that that is simply the nature of it. And the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking was, was uh, that that advances in science and and they come from the fringe. They always have. So you, you used a good example with plate tectonics. The same thing, Jay Hull and Brett's with you know catastrophism, even Galileo. Like yes, there's advances in science to come from the fringe. That's just the the way it is. Um, and it's it's actually one of the downfalls of the whole peer review system, to be honest. But in terms of pushback, uh, look, I'm not without my critics. That's for sure. And 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 I I almost I consider it a. Um, uh, I'm a sign of success, to be honest, that I'm getting some attention uh, with some of these <laughs> right. things. And I've had, and, and I, I, I feel like it's a badge of honor. I've, I've definitely had some run-ins with establishment figures. John Hoops at Kansas State University is a professor of anthropology there has called me out on Twitter at one point. Uh, and then I went to great lengths to, to return the favor actually, cause he's, <laughs> he, he's, he's uh well, he, he's a uh, well-known for, he'd been attacking Graham Hancock. He's kind of one of these rabid, anti-Younger Dryas uh, people. And in fact, I, I found that I, one of the funny things about that was that, and this is kind of, it gets into the nitty gritty about how establishment works, but, you know, he was, I love the story because he was forever pointing people like, ah, oh, the Younger Dryas is bullshit. Like it's, it's nonsense. It's, you, you don't even, it's just re recycled sort of uh, Donnelly comet impacts, you know, esoterica from the 70, 1700s or something. And just go to the Wikipedia, go to the Wikipedia, read the page. Wikipedia, that's the most non-biased source for information about the Younger Dryas. Oh, my God. Oh, was, Lord. <laughs> go into Wikipedia. And then so I'm like, all right, let's go to Wikipedia. So I went there and, and turns out, if you, 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 I love that. One nice thing about Wikipedia is you can see who's been editing the page. And was lo and him? behold, the whole two pages, like hoops, 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 hoops. <laughs> yeah, he, he'd, he'd, he'd deleted everything and rewritten that stuff. And, ah, oh, look, it's unbiased. It's not biased. He's telling everyone something like, you wrote this. Wow. He, he, like unbelievable and he was calling like yeah with the younger dryas there's 250 plus now peer-reviewed scientific paper there are a lot of very well credentialed uh mainstream scientists guys that work in you know paleoclimatology and and yeah in a lot of impact related sort of sciences and looking at that impact proxies and nano diamonds and magnetic spherules all this the, the whole map layer that's, that's associated with that period of time thirteen thousand years ago there's 250 papers now. I mean, it's. I think it's getting towards established science, and we've even, you know, we, all, we're, all we're missing is a verified crater, and we might even have that now with with the Greenland crater. But yeah, he's just dismisses all that as bunk because it 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 messes with his version of history. So I've had a bit of pushback from guys like that, uh, and then I've also there's always a crowd of um, hecklers, and you know, in terms of people that like to make videos about me that criticise me and and and. And I've I'm yet to find one that isn't just completely ridden with uh, logical fallacies and straw man arguments and appeals to authority and just and I just and I don't I'm not going to engage with it like I don't, a lot of these guys want that you know there's a whole subculture and industry about drama and back and forth and I think yeah. a lot of people enjoy that sort of thing I think it's a waste of time I actually have made my my thoughts known in some of my videos about the how worthwhile I find arguing with people on the internet um, which is to say not at all. And it's just, you know, my videos and my work stands for itself. People are free to make whatever content they want about it. Uh, but the nice thing about this is that they, they can't, unless you get to the point of like being deplatformed for being anti-establishment, which, hey, that's 
that may come in the future. They're certainly going that direction with YouTube now and a lot of different topics. Thankfully, not history yet, but that's you know that's part of the reason I'm trying to build up a support base outside of it, outside of YouTube, because I, I see that right. writing on the wall eventually just simply by being anti-establishment. Um, they're great. They, they love suppressing anything that's uh, anti-establishment over YouTube. It's, you know, pick your political flavor of the day or right. topic and, and they're going to squish it, uh, which I think is nonsense. I'm a massive proponent of free speech, which includes the right to criticize. So I fully support anyone's right to, if they want to look at my stuff and make content about it and respond, that's fine. Uh, and, you know, I, I, you can say what you want. And but I, I generally just let my stuff speak for itself. And the nice thing is that you can't really get cancelled like this. Like I'm not, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a career to protect in terms of like a, you know, tenure at an, at an academic, academic environment or whatever it is. Like, uh, so, you know, it's just the, the normal sort of cut and thrust between different fields and content creation, nothing too uh, severe in terms of pushback, but um yeah, I, I, it's, I, and I try to be relatively respectful about a lot of this stuff too. I make my case and I don't spend a lot of time um, criticizing people individually and I don't respond to people individually. Uh, I mean, everyone likes to make a bit of fun of Zahi Huas here and there, but he's kind of, <laughs> he's kind of brought that on himself, let's just say, because, and I've seen, I've had personal engagement with him uh, and, and I was there for the infamous debate he had with Graham Hancock where he kind of, you know, what threw all the toys out. 13 seconds. What, the, did he yell the, the at him? debate, yeah. Oh, he well, it's yeah, it's a long series, like a back and forth where he oh. he uh, he well, kind of threw the one chuck, where he walks chucked out. all the toys out the pram. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, I was there. I was in the room. Uh, okay. Yeah, and uh, then later on with the debate, it was it was a farce. It was a sh- it was a sh- it was it was a shame, and yep. it was a farce. Like we, there were people there to see a debate. Like and ho- there was great hope that we would actually have a debate. And, and a respectful debate. And, and Hancock, Graham, I know Graham reasonably well. He, he's nothing if not very respectful. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's not, he's not out here insulting anyone. And uh, he's just got his ideas and his, he's, he was looking to engage and that didn't happen. Anyway, but, but I, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, the pushback's been fine. I, 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 there's plenty of people that are critical, but that's just to be expected and, when you're doing something like this in the public sphere, you can't, I, I kind of treat it like you can't let the negative criticism get to you in the same way that you can't let the, and for me, it is overwhelmingly positive feedback get to you either. Like I just, like I, that's all good, but it's not like, you know, it's, I, I very much appreciate all the positive comments and the feedback for, for the work, but I'm just trying, I'm trying to do my thing and I can't let that sort of get into your head any more than you can let the negative stuff get right. to you. Because there's, if you're going to be, if you have people looking at your stuff, you're guaranteed going to get negative um, commentary about it. So it is what it is. Yeah. I, I look at it and I, I scratch my head because as a science teacher, I teach my kids, you know, you should question things. You should uh, try to use the scientific method. Method. But, yep. you know, it, it almost feels like to me anymore, it's like, oh, you can say what you want. And, you can think what you want as long as it's what we say. It, yeah. and, you know, and it's uh, it, it it's kind of scary because it, it, at one point, you know, we're giving these kids, you know, we're trying to give them agency. You know, we want them to yep. learn and explore the world. But man, if you ask the wrong question, which I think we're all supposed to do is ask questions. How are we going to progress if we don't ask questions, questions. and 
Absolutely. We're told we can't say certain things because, well, you might upset somebody mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, that's not agreed upon language. I mean, at one point I woke up <laughs> and, and I was like, did we wake up in Nazi Germany at some mm-hmm. point and we can't have a discussion because we can't say something that might upset somebody? How do you ever learn anything <laughs> if you don't upset people? That's right. You know, and how do they I learn? Do, yeah. They don't. Yeah, How do they 100%. learn? They go to Wikipedia, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do the professors, yeah, right. and they write exactly. it. Wow. Yeah. Even my seventh graders know not to touch Wikipedia. Yeah, it's yeah. a horribly biased source. I, I, uh, I've pointed that out in a few of my my YouTube uh, live stream videos that I've done. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Like that's there. Uh, I, I, hundred um, percent agree with that sentiment, and I think. Uh, we have a real problem on our hand. There's, and you know, the whole science, the scientific method is one thing. There's, it's being turned into a. I think there's a good comment I heard from a from a. I forgot. God, it's not. It's uh, someone from like Hoover Institute fellow. It wasn't uh, Tom Soul. It was someone else. But had talked about that a lot of like religion and and really, science is replacing religion as this belief system. And a lot of people like believe in science, and it's just not. It's just simply not a belief system. It's a method for evaluating the world. Like there's a. You know, you must, you're anti science, you're against it. No, the nature of science, and it's, it's neither is it a consensus sport, by the way. But, um, right. And it's, we, we would still be on a flat earth if that was the case. But, uh, I still believe that. But, um, you're absolutely right in that, that things like universities in particular, but, you know, that's places like that are supposed to challenge you. And that's right. You, yeah. This, this limiting of, of ideas and even words, I'm against all of it. I, the, the, I'm very much a pro proponent of free speech and, and, you don't have any right not to be offended as far as I'm concerned. That's you'll be okay. Toughen up sugar. Like it's, you know, like if getting offended is not the end of the world and the, the best response to speech you don't like is more speech. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how we progress and learn. You, ideas get tested in that marketplace of ideas. Things, things rise and fail. They get tested, they fail. And, and, you know, you, you can often take uh, some, some measure of truth or some measure of progress from even bad ideas. Like that's the, that's, That's the right. nature of progress, and and we're kind of arbitrarily cutting a lot, of, cutting ourselves off at the knees, and I think coddling almost entire generations uh, away from conflict and and things like that. Like the, the, we have to be able, learn to be able to deal with that sort of stuff uh, as human beings, and and be able to deal with ideas we don't like, and and handle them, and respond to them. Like that's yeah, it's I I share all of you. <laughs> we could probably talk for hours about this too, but yeah, yeah. I, 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 I share your opinions on that stuff for sure. Okay, well, let's uh, let's move on to a little bit of something else. Now, you did hit on one of my favorite ideas, and it goes back to the college and institution things, but the younger driest impact theory. Now, I, mm-hmm. I noticed that you've done a lot of work with Randall Carlson, Grimerica mm-hmm. podcast, the yep. Brothers of the Serpent, which we're going to have on later snakes. Uh, next Monday. week. The Snakes. Yep. Monday. Snakes. We'll be interviewing yeah. them Monday and we'll put that show out on that following Sunday. But yeah, great bunch of guys. And the you yeah. guys were working on um, what you guys have termed contact at the cabin. Yeah. And can you tell can you tell mm-hmm. our, our audience about what that entailed? And what sure. that's really about in because uh, I'm, I'm very uh, familiar with the younger Dryas. And let me tell you why. And, and you'll probably okay. get a kick out of this. My 
paleontology and earth science professor, great guy. He put up the explanation of when I asked him what happened to all the megafauna. And this was years ago. <laughs> this was before I knew about Randall Carlson or anything that things did not sound right. I said, you had woolly mammoths, you had mastodons, you had saber toothed tigers. What is, what is the deal? And he said, the accepted ideas are chill, ill, or kill, or a combination of the three. So that's, it, it got cold. <laughs> it yeah. got cold. Yeah. They got sick. And then humans killed everything. And then, and then he mentioned off to the side, well, there is a little idea about might've been a impact Impact. of some type somewhere, but, but it it was in the same breath where he was also explaining to us about the meltwater pulses, meltwater (laughs) pulse A and B. It's like, where'd all the ice go? What happened? Uh, uh, Ice dam broke. And yeah, repeatedly, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if people are interested in learning about that, look up Randall Carlson and digging into the younger driest impact. But uh, mm-hmm. Ben is into this. He knows oh, yeah. quite a well, bit about it. And I just want to turn it over to you and, and have you talk okay. about it a little bit. Well, sure. We'll get to contact the cabin too. And, and Randall, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Randall, very privileged to have gotten to know him a little bit in the last uh, year or so, but um and I've done a couple of podcasts with him. He's uh, he's great. He's a fountain of knowledge. But uh, yeah, so actually, that's the funny that the chill kind of falls into it too. But uh, right, <laughs> there's, there's there's a whole there's a tremendous number of 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 kind of um, what would you say? Uh, I guess coincidences around that period of time that 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 that, are, that sort of make it a very interesting period of history. But very people, few people really, I think, realize that there's been a massive cataclysm on the planet. And that's when I was talking about the 250 peer-reviewed papers yes. earlier. I mean, those are in support of the Younger Dryas cosmic impact theory or hypothesis, which is uh, what it is. I think it's very close to becoming established uh, science. But yeah, as you said, there's a it, it's kind of that period is 12,800 years ago to 11,600 years ago. Uh, that that is the end of the Pleistocene or the end of the Ice Age, the beginning of the Holocene, our modern epoch. Uh, and it, it, there is, and a lot of this evidence for something catastrophic happening started to pile up, kind of in the late uh, the, the later part of last century, the like nineteen eighties and nineties. Um, tremendous amount of evidence for it, and it's, it started really with the thing that sort of triggered a lot of it was these ice core samples that they got out of out of Greenland, and then also out of um, Vostok in in Antarctica, not Vostok, it's Russia, but Antarctica. Yes. Uh, so in the and and ice when it when it gets laid down year after year with snowfall, we can we can we're getting better and better at really granularly uh, determining things like temperature and oxygen isotopes and 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 there's a lot we can tell about the climate on the planet um, going back in these different layers. And it turns out that you know we there's a tremendously disruptive period around that time, like and. And ever since then, we've been in this steady, beautiful sort of gradual warming and pretty much just flatlining off to this nice weather that we've had for the last eight or 9,000 years, which is the reason why our civilization has risen to where it is, frankly. Um, but so there's this, that, that's where it started. And then it wasn't until 2005 that the first paper came out that really went and looked at, hey, there is tremendous um, evidence now uh, in the strata layers around the planet 
for impact proxies. And these are these exactly what they, they, they sound like. They're proxies. They're, they're indicators of an impact. The uh, shock ports, right? Right. So, yeah. They're, they're, nano diamonds. Nano diamonds. Yeah. Shock synthesized nano, nano diamonds. The magnetic spherules, the extraterrestrial platinum and iridium. There's a, a black matte layer. There's also evidence of like 10% of the biomass on the planet burning around that point. And this is in a layer that's a well-defined and, and well kind of um, good province, uh, if you like, for this layer and, and where it relates in terms of dating. Funny, funny story. They actually went to a lot of archaeological sites in, in the US to do this. But, and because the Clovis layer, the, the Clovis people, as that's that 13,000-year date, um, they went to a lot of these established sites to get this data. But now we have evidence for this in more than 50 sites in the US, as well as sites in in, in South America, in Chile, in, in South Africa, all show the same thing. There was something happened, massive um, massive correlation to this proxy to, to proxy to this to this impact. All of this microscopic evidence in these layers in the soil. Oh, by the way, also this giant megafauna extinction around the same time. And and that was equivalent. Like then people think, oh, I was overhunting. It's absolute rubbish because <laughs> it's ridiculous. The, the, the amount of species that went extinct is a, is the equivalent of the number of large species that are alive today. Literally right. half of the megafauna got eradicated in a very short period of time, right down to two species of birds. And so if you're telling me that sort of small roving bands of paleo-Indian hunters are responsible for this, it's nonsense. By the, yeah, and they also were, some of the... They were eating ahead. dire wolves. They were eating saber-toothed face bears. The short-faced bear, which I mean, you know, made some human of the, snacks. Yeah, that's what we were hunting. Some of the hunting. most savage, largest creatures. Like there's no, you know, we can't, we didn't manage to do it in with guns. And uh, right. So, and then the other thing you mentioned also is, oh, all the ice melted all of a sudden, these huge meltwater pulses. And in this period, sea levels rose 350 odd feet um, in a fairly yep. short order. And, and, and there's other, you know, there's, there's a lot of dynamics. And so where Randall sits in this is he's, he's a, um, he looks at the other angle of evidence for this, which, which I would classify kind of the big scale, the geological evidence for catastrophe and catastrophism and these massive, massive floods on the order of, just orders of magnitude beyond anything we've ever could imagine. And, and, and he spent his life kind of researching this and moving that discussion forward because he also stands on the shoulders of predecessors like Jay Harlan Bretz. And this is where the channeled scablands comes into it. This is the, right. the, the big, the scablands of Eastern Washington state, which was essentially a giant floodplain that was created in a, a period of a couple of weeks as a result of these absolutely monstrous catastrophic floods at the end of the last ice age, most likely one or two of them. And this is where the mainstream science and Randall kind of uh, collide. And there's a long history here uh, with, with the way that geology's worked over time as a, as a science with gradualism and uniformitarianism being the explanation for everything. Uh, this was a result of the age of reason when, when, when science first started to develop and it was moving away from religion, which, of course, contains all these stories, funny enough, of catastrophes, of flood, of fire, yeah, not just the Something yeah. like 150 flood stories, uh, flood stories out there in, yeah. in mythologies around the world that, that talk about yeah. humans that have survived a massive yeah. cataclysm. But we can't talk about that because that's too closely <laughs> related to religion. And then right. that means that maybe in the Bible, instead of it being a nice story for people to get something from, it might actually be part historical document. But, right. you know, we can't touch truth. that. That's right. 
Yeah, well, and that's where geology was. They, 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 when geology first arose as a science, they tried them. They literally had a stated goal for like sixty years to to use gradual like erosion, uh, the gentle erosion that we see working today. As a, they had to come up with explanations for everything we see, and that was a stated goal. And it was simply to get away from that catastrophism of religion. Now they definitely overcorrected a bit, and this is and this is still in effect in some textbooks today. Like there's still some crazy explanations in geology. For some features that are much more elegantly explained as a result of catastrophism, and that's what the scablands are. That's and that's what Randall looks at, and and he's a he's an incredibly intelligent guy. He's, he's a genius, honestly, and he reads a lot of these papers. He's up to date on all this. And so, contact at the cabins is yeah, a group of a couple of, of friends of mine, the podcasters. We got together. I they had done this in the past. This has been a group. I've just recently joined them, and I will be going on future trips. But it's an it's a chance for people to get out into the field with Randall and in with other experts uh, into places like the channeled scab lands, but also other places and spend a week going through this evidence, like, like talking and, and getting into it, looking at the evidence firsthand, looking at these landscapes. And I, again, I've got a lot of this on, on captured on, on my videos. I cover the, you know, the, the evidence for uh, catastrophe in, 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 in religions across the planet. I've got videos on all of this stuff, but some by far and away, some of the most spectacular stuff is the channel scablands and, and kind of the evidence for widespread uh, flooding and, and massive cataclysm. Cause that's what I, that's what happened. As far as I'm concerned, like we're, we're a species with amnesia. That's a great term that Graham Hancock popularized. Yes. And you know, our species, we went through a giant sort of knockout blow only 13,000 years ago. And as a species, we've been here maybe 350, 400,000 years at a minimum. There's a chance that we've been here significantly longer uh, when you look at some of the, the DNA and genetic evidence, but uh, in terms of human remains, that's where we're at now. We used to think we were 50,000 years old. Now we're, then it went to 110. Now it's 300 to 400 based on the latest finds. Yep. And, you know, history and civilizations, we know it arose in the last 6,000 years. It's, it's nonsense. So, right. And, in- that kind of goes with my thinking of the ancient technology or high technology. It's like, if you look what humans have done just in the last 150, 200 years, and we've been on this planet with our brain size and everything for the last, okay, let's be conservative 200,000 years. All right. Sure. What, what possibly could we have come up with, I mean, obviously we had the, somebody built the pyramids to precision. Somebody knew how to make granite boxes to precision. They, mm. it, it, they were not, well, they might've been hunter gatherers maybe after a cataclysm, but it, it makes no sense to, to sit there and say, and, and by the way, when you talk about the, the sea level changing after the end of the last ice age, you know, 350, yeah. 400 feet, that's all your continental shelf. And people well, love t- to live ten, next to water. 10 million square miles. Yeah. yeah. So just gone, just, just gone. Yep. So. Yep. And that's where we should be looking. And we just, that's yes. not an area that we look though. Like that's. Uh, well, we, we marine, drill it. Mar- well, we drill it, but and marine yeah. archaeology is is almost solely focused on shipwrecks. There's no yes. There's been there's been no sort of wide scale search for evidence of civilization in that in that sort of you know three hundred to four hundred foot continental shelf areas. And that, like I said, that ten million square miles, it's an awful lot of 
awful lot of land, yeah. And I mean, we had there was a find in Morocco that, that dated us to more than three, like a human remains. That's the oldest human remains is, is over three hundred thousand years old now. So we wow. we know we've been here at least that long. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we the, the ideas with with the DNA evidence is that we we split with a common ancestor with the Neanderthals somewhere around the eight hundred to nine hundred thousand year range. Like that's the that's where they yeah. think that might have might have occurred. And humans have probably lived through quite a few cataclysms. I remember a video that I showed my students that was about volcanic eruptions and like super volcanoes and things. And about yeah. 76,000 years ago, they were talking about how humans were down to about the last anywhere hmm. from 5,000 to 15,000 wandering Africa, just trying to survive that they can trace all yeah. DNA to all humans back to this small surviving group of a massive cataclysm of volcanic, you know? Yep. So yeah. it, well, it's the, out there. There's actually a Y chromosome bottleneck around the younger drives as well. This is new evidence. This only just came out. Um, Tony Zamora has some very good video, videos on it um, on YouTube, but yeah, right around that younger drives period, there was a massive decline in male populations uh, across cultures everywhere in the world. I wonder why, like, right. Yeah. And as, as you say, we, I think, I think we are the survivors and that's, that happens to be the story that's always that almost every every culture. I mean, you, you can't really find one that doesn't have a story like that, that, that ancient or modern religion, for that matter, that doesn't talk about our ancestors going through some form of world-ending cataclysm and then, you know, the, being forced to start again and, and, and go again. And there's, it's happened repeatedly. And on a long enough time frame, the chances of it happening again uh, get to 100%. Like it, these sort of things will happen again. And it's... You know, it's one thing we'll probably survive them and the hunter-gatherer cultures around the world will survive them. But these are like, they'll end civilizations, which is kind of my point. Like if they're, these are, we've been through cataclysms that would have ended civilizations. And and while pockets of humanity may have, may have survived and even some pockets of knowledge, and I think that's what happened in Egypt. I think that was a kind of a culture that was kickstarted with a fair bit of, of, a, of, an, of an inheritance, both culturally and in terms of objects and structures. But, you know, and that's what they say too. They, they literally call themselves a legacy civilization. Yeah. And they trace their own history back some 30 or 40,000 years uh, through the Turin uh, papyrus. And then at least that's the only piece of evidence we have for it. But they, they call themselves a legacy civilization. And, you know, they're telling us the story. Yeah. And, yeah. There's, there's lots, a lot of, a lot of the same with religions. Like they're, they're, there's data in them that's it's mystified and it's deified and it's put into these stories. But that's also how human beings retain knowledge. We have these oral traditions. You can't just give people data. You have to, if you put it into the context of a story and these tales, then then they get remembered, they get passed on. And uh, I think for a lot of that stuff, there's, there are grains of truth in a lot of it. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of religious books and uh, stories are essentially, to some degree, eyewitness accounts of, of cataclysm and you know, things that have happened that we've lived through. So, Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Before we end the podcast tonight, we got to switch gears and we have to go yeah, yeah. to the UFOs. Now, I Been do know for. you're with your uh your uh live Twitch streaming that you do, you, you know, put out awesome videos. Again, everybody go check them out. And by the way, the younger Dryas, if you want to learn more about the younger Dryas impact theory, check out Ben's, I think it's a two-part interview you do with Randall. Mm -hmm. And if, if anybody, 
has ever watched Joe Rogan, you've seen Randall on his podcast yeah. probably, I think, four or five times Been on at there this point. Times, yeah. yeah. Um, so Randall is <clears throat> very knowledgeable and uh, very much looking into these studies of the younger driest impact mm-hmm. and, and he knows his stuff. So there's plenty of research out there for you guys to do on your own, but <clears throat> on Twitch, you were talking last night that you had about a three hour video and I, there's no mm-hmm. way I want to talk to you that long about it. Cause I know <laughs> you're getting tired, so but good. on Twitch, you talked about UFOs and your ideas between disclosure and, and mm-hmm. uh, what these things might be. Now I started watching it. Okay. But I stopped it because I didn't want to get pre, you know, any bias and and just put it out there for you um, to talk about. So uh, what do you make of all of these UFOs in the news and this Uh upcoming report that is supposedly getting released by the end of this month? And a lot of it's already been leaked. Like, well, people aren't going to be that impressed by what you get told, so right? I say, yeah, embrace, embrace yourself for disappointment on that yeah. thing, I'm pretty sure. But yeah. And I'm going to just throw it out there, and we can mm-hmm. end with this as, as uh, if you Topic. would like. But um, Whatever. We'll see how we go. The, uh, the ancient alien hypothesis, okay? And, right. and that's why I like talking about Egypt, because these things seem to cross paths like a bad ghostbuster movies when they say don't cross the beams you know <laughs> it's like well we we don't know Whole how they built, doing that right we don't know how the pyramids were made we don't know this uh, it was aliens right Very right Marshall. so Hugh Giorgio yeah 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 so what do you make of all of this uh, well so I did do that stream, and I, it is, and it is not. I don't. Uh, I've never really talked about. It's not something that comes up in my work. So at a high level, I can tell you that I don't need that need it to explain uh, what we're looking at in terms of um, megalithic and ancient cultures. I don't think it's involved there. I just don't. I don't need it, and and it's, I think that human history is is rich enough, and that our our past is long enough that that we've probably risen to other forms of civilization now. And this is why I wanted to get into it, and I spent a lot of time talking through the context of this in that stream, because that, that's 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 a very that's not to say that I don't find the whole thing entirely plausible, and there's a whole different number of degrees and angles you can take on that. So there's a uh, first of all, there's, there's a, a there's a lot of nuance, yeah. right? So so at a high level, and I'll try I can run through. I'm sure your listeners, if they're familiar with the topic, will understand a lot of these things. So. I think the whole intervention theory is quite likely, and either and but a couple different potential flavors of that too. So, in terms of how life itself may have been started on the planet, so you know, there's a lot of mystery around that. How DNA kicked off, and as, as we can talk for days about just DNA and, and the inherent technology of that. That even though we've had a lot of evolution, DNA itself has never changed as a technology that expresses life. Uh, it it it's it itself has never changed, and there's still a mystery around how that started. So panspermia or even the Prometheus model of being seated, entirely plausible to me. Uh, and, and you've got to, the other thing I say a lot is, and is that across the, anyone who thinks long and hard enough about the, the vastness of space and the, and the depth of time of the universe, I mean, and if you've done any research in the Kepler missions and uh, just understanding that, that 
the lie, I'm, I'm absolutely certain, and I feel like it's almost a mathematical certainty at this point that the universe is likely teeming with life. And there's a good chance that, that some of it has developed quite a long way. So I will say that I find it all very plausible. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's the whole, and this gets to some of the modern phenomena. Uh, it's, it's all, I'm sure there also is a lot of, there's been a lot of hoaxing. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, there's a whole industry around the attention to this. It's, it's one of those tricky things about same thing as the Bigfoot realm, right? What's, what's legit? What isn't, what's this, what's that? Uh, it's it's I sort of treat it and personally for me it's like I find it all very plausible like Roswell sure and even before then there was reports reports of it uh, the whole abduction experience is 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 it that's a modern phenomena but it also ties in closely to like fairy stories from the Middle Ages and you know people being abducted from their families with with fairies in the same sort of experiences the same time dilation effect all these things uh, it, it seems entirely plausible to me. And and even some of the crazy conspiracy stuff that I'd classify it as with the I forget the name of the hacker guy that Gary um, is it McKinnon or someone that that you know there's these supposedly reports of off world stations and and we've got military postings and we've there's been contact already and again plausible I also don't ever think that we'll find out the truth because even with the disclosure that's happening now and it's not like it's a new thing right the Mexican government the UK and there's been other disclosure projects. Um, I don't think anyone's a going to really trust what the government says about this because they've had a long and storied history of basically telling fibs about it and Project Blue Blue Book and Blue Beam, whatever it is, back yeah, in the Project day. Project Blue Book, yeah. Blue Book, yeah. And and you know, it's I just don't think we can we're going anyone's going to really trust what comes out in terms of report. I'm so I'm never I'm I'm kind of not convinced that uh, we'll ever really get to the truth. So I, I kind of just accept it all as plausible and 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 move on with my day. Like it doesn't. I wouldn't be surprised. Say say that. Let, let's say the massive announcements were made. Okay, I'm not. It's not going to radically change my my existence. I think it's entirely plausible. And I, I actually I go so far as also to to think that you know there's there's a, a possibility that that life itself, the moon. There's a lot of interesting elements to where we live and how life's evolved here and. I think that that intervention theory could be is something that even has to do with humans ourselves, like our place in the the tree of life on this planet could have been engineered. It's plausible, and this is this is the Sitchin story and people of Anunnaki, which I'm not a huge uh, fan of. I, I kind of tend to err on the side of like mostly he's been debunked. Uh, I think with some of the translation stuff, but the story itself and the, the concept, I don't think. I don't just rule it out. I think it's entirely plausible. And there's actually some interesting evidence. Guys like Lloyd Pye show um, from a genetic standpoint that, that are suggestive of, of things like engineering that's played, genetic engineering that's happened to humans. So I'm interested in all of it. Uh, I don't need it for the ancient, ancient um, architecture stuff. Although, again, I'm sure that if there's been other species or, or other whatever it is visiting this phenomena occurring, I'm sure it was occurring back then too. And there's even some evidence that suggests it was, but I don't. I don't like. They're not like landing pads, you know. Baalbek's not a landing pad for a spaceship, and the, the Nazca lines aren't landing strips. I don't. I don't go down that path with it all. Um, so yeah, that's more or less my opinion. I, I'm very interested, and I think it's all very plausible. But I tend to steer away from the ancient aliens topic just because of the. I mean, honestly, that the, the show and and it's one of the big labels that gets slapped on to anything alternative. You know, you don't think that the right. Egyptians built it, then you must think the aliens did it. And that's right. 
you know, I've, I've even seen people that make videos about my stuff with, like, it's a picture of me, a picture of Chris Dunn, the Petrie's call number seven, and, and a spaceship behind us. Like, it's like that's, <laughs> it's a, it's the most common straw man that I get. Uh, yeah. Is that, oh, you must you must think the aliens done it. I've, had, I've even had people say that to me, a guide in South America that we were with um, on on a later trip. His guy was a, a he was not happy with the idea that I that I either that I'd been to Peru before, which I had, and then. He was not pleased with the idea with, with me sort of questioning the architecture and looking at the different styles. And he at one point did say, well, if you don't think the Inca did it, you must think the aliens did it. I'm like, yeah, okay. Never heard that one before. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's just not possible that there's more nuance to it than that. I suppose, but yeah, very common straw man argument. So it's not a topic that I tend to touch on in my videos too much, but I wanted to touch on it in that stream because it was, it was, you know, it's topical and I get the question a fair bit about what, what do I think? Um, yeah, I think the universe is a strange place, and I think it's all very plausible. And you know, I'm just open minded to it, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so much seek. I don't think I'm ever going to find the answer. Honestly, I think it is. I've not had any experiences like that, or I've not seen anything myself, or had any uh, life changing experiences like that. Um, so yeah, but I'm open minded to it all. You know, whether it's interdimensional or you know, like intergalactic or time travel it's us from the future who knows there's a million different theories about this stuff right well, it's coming from the deep oceans i don't know but yeah a lot of this stuff's plausible yeah, I think. especially um, a lot that we're hearing now from the navy right you, you know which is very bizarre but all right yeah um some of the sensor videos are interesting yeah i mean i've yeah. been paying attention to it so i mean yeah, yeah there's there's a lot going on there's either some really crazy advanced drone projects or even sensor spoofing projects or who knows what going on but or 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 it's something else, you know. Right. I, I'm just like, I wouldn't hold my breath for an honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, all right. So, ending questions. So, you already answered one of them was if you had any experience with any UFOs or UAPs or anything like that in all your travels. And no, I have a I have a Celestron eight inch telescope back here, and I do and I do have a big field of view. I go out media watching quite a bit um, on my back hill here, and. Yeah, I can't say that that I've had that experience. Um, okay. That what I, about I um, any like paranormal experiences, such as ghosts, spirits, any, any of that? No, I can't say. I can't say that I have. I, I, uh, I no, I, I just don't. And, and I'm also though. Um, I'm I I. It's a funny thing. I don't dream either. So so there's like I think a lot of that with either really. It's, yeah, so people have yeah, it's weird. I very or very rarely, like a handful of times in my life. That's I've just I've always had this I go to sleep and I wake up, I just don't dream. It's it's a there's a long story associated with some of that, but I just I don't and I don't know if that's part of it if people um it has to do with like sleepwalking or dreaming or anything anything like that that can be me maybe construed as either those experiences. I don't know if it's related and I'm not ruling out the paranormal stuff either. I'm I'm interested, but yeah, no, I've never I've never I've never um I've never had had any of those types of uh, experiences. I'd be interested in them either way. I'm I'm generally pretty rational and trying to try to f- get to the bottom of of a lot of things. But um, I did learn in Egypt that there's an emotional connection and and this this strange because I went there thinking I'd be entirely rational and just trying to evaluate this stuff. But you, you know when you're there, there's a there's absolutely like this left brain right brain thing that happens. We we have a, a real emotional reaction to some of these things and. 
Um, you know, that's not to say that I haven't had very profound experiences. I've okay. had a few of those, and I and I'm a big believer in like the the benefit of of properly properly used uh, psychedelics, and um, uh, you know whether it's whatever DMT or or uh, or uh, psilocybin. I think that's and I think that's actually has a has a strong relation to our history and. Uh, there's a very interesting book called The Immortality Key that, that's come out recently. Uh, Brian Morescu, who Graham Hancock took on the took on the the uh, the Rogan show. He's and I like Hancock's work in that space too. And I've, yeah. I've gone down a little bit of that path myself too. And I've had those profound experiences, but I wouldn't describe them as paranormal, but absolutely profound as well. I mean, at, at the same time, I know there's um, some colleges like some high level. I want to say Yale or mm-hmm. anyway, there there are some some professors that are seriously looking into why do people have these same kind of dmt trips yeah strassman did a lot of work on it yeah so it's very interesting that that we seem to be going back a little bit in time where they were messing with uh psychedelics in the 50s and 60s and right all that and esp training and Uh uh-huh you know Um, now it seems like we're coming full circle again. All right. So last question for you is the three creepiest places that Mm. you ever visited that just made you extremely besides this podcast made you extreme, (laughs) made you extremely (laughs) uncomfortable and you, uh, you just, you just had to get out of there. Goldman Sachs. There you uh, go. Right. It gives everybody yeah, that, the creeps. The heart of darkness. Well, yeah, I mean, I used to say this part of the, when I, in IT, I did actually eventually, like, I'm not working with these guys anymore. And I wasn't interested. But um, in terms of uh, ancient, honestly, yeah, Goldman Sachs, some <laughs> of the places in China. But, yeah, I would classify it as I felt just dirty being in there helping those guys. Um, uh, it's a tr- tough one to answer. Uh, in terms of ancient sites, let me think. There was a, it was a, I guess creepy is like, uh, and I'm, not, see, I'm not, I, you know, yeah, I don't, I heard Jimmy talking about that at some of these places. I really don't, I'm usually quite excited to be in place and I'm not <laughs> at all scared by the like dark places and, uh, the curse of the Pharaoh, any of that. No, I, I, I quite enjoy squeaky. Like uh, there's a, there's a, there's a Mastaba in my doom called Mastaba 17 and you got to get like down and crawl through this dirt passage and it's very tight and squeezy, but it's just a, it was revelatory getting in there for me. It wasn't creepy at all. I mean, I have to say like zone X zone X, which is a, 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 a not very well-known place above Cusco near Sacsayhuaman. That's a bunch of like caves and, uh, and some of those types of things. There's, I guess you'd, you'd probably describe that as being relatively creepy, but I don't, you know, I, I've heard people say that like the Osiris shaft was, was a bit creepy. I didn't, I, I, I just, I, yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I don't, I don't, it's hard for me to say any of those places would be okay. really creepy. Um, and I don't, and I mean, I've been exploring in the catacombs on the Sacsayhuaman in rooms just filled up with human bones, you know, and human remains and things. I'm just not, like nope, that's fine. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Like that's just they're they're massive necropolises. Wasn't and, there uh, human of, bones down at the bottom of the, or at least on the second level of the Osiris shaft that were kind of oh yeah people yeah, didn't yeah, understand what, what that was about. They're everywhere. There, you just bone people. I mean, I I have uh, videos and it's little clips I have scattered in some of my my content. But yeah, I've gotten into some places that are kind of off limits and and. 
there's there's catacombs in Saqqara and also a lot, a lot of these places, but you literally have like tons of skulls and like rooms knee deep and full of bones, like just human remains that have just been like, wow. piled up in there. Um, and, and other burials where you've got intact skeletons and things like that. There's They've been burying people in these places for thousands of years and up until fairly recent times. So it's, yeah, it's not, uh, they're, they're, we're exploring these giant necropolises. That just doesn't, doesn't bother me though. I, I, uh, you know, I'm not in there taking souvenirs or anything. So, and I'm just, you know, passing through looking for, looking at the, the walls more than the bones, I suppose. But, um, yeah, it was, I, I, those are good experiences for me. I enjoyed them. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Ben. So, uh, before you take off, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, your social media? What do you got going on that sure. people can check you out? Because people, you need to check Ben out in his videos. They, they will change your, they will, they will change your mind. I mean, they, his videos are a consciousness opening experience and Thank you. you learn so much. I've, I've probably learned more than going to university just by watching these videos. Wow. So um, well, thank you. I, I mean, I never kind. even, well, I, I'm just telling you, it, it, I'm being honest. These are great videos. The conversations you've had with Randall, um, the stuff you're doing on Twitch now, it's, it's amazing. So tell thank everybody you. where they can find you. Oh, and by the way, yes, cool. I am wearing my megalithics. Ah, megalithics. I see it. Yeah. Good yes, on you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to get the merch. Pretty yes. Good. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so tell everybody where to find you. Yeah, so uh, obviously it's just search for Uncharted X on YouTube. It's uh, that's probably the best place. Otherwise, it's UnchartedX.com. You can pretty much find links to everything I'm doing um, there as well if you're interested. And as you said, I am on Twitch. I do stream pretty regularly. I think Tuesdays, Sundays, Tuesdays, Fridays, and Sundays, and out outside of those times as well. Uh, so you can find me on Twitch, uh, Twitter. Oh, pardon me. I think on Twitter I'm UnchartedX1. Uh, I believe Instagram UnchartedX7. But yeah, I have links to all of those like in my videos. So probably the best place is just go search for Uncharted X on uh, on Watch YouTube the videos. or go to or go to my website, right? And if you look at look down in any of the details and the and the uh, I guess the description under the videos, you'll find links to anywhere else if you're interested. I have a Discord server too. Uh, I like to plug that. That's a good community. I know you're a part of it. Uh, yes. In fact, that's kind of how we got to talking about doing the podcast. So got a, a good discord community full of a couple hundred people that are really interested there's a lot of discussions going on there all the time uh, it's a good place to kind of hang out and test ideas and 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 talk to other people so uh, yes. links to all of those on the website and you you do have merch so if you want to help support Ben and his projects uh, cool you've got the merch out there and then you're also yep. doing something with a producer executive producer patreon what what's I going am, on with yeah. that well, so I, I'm very grateful for my patrons and, and people that choose to support me through the various mechanisms. I try to be as open as I can. But uh, over time, there's, there's, I've found that there has been some very generous people that I'm, I'm very gracious to that, that, that want to give me like, you know, $100 or more or $200 or more. And so I've tried to find a way and I've borrowed heavily from the No Agenda Show, which is a fantastic podcast. I'd recommend that one to everyone. Uh, I'm a massive fan of those guys, and that's where I get the value for value model from, and where I also get the the producership idea from. So it's by way of being able to thank people uh, that do support me in those larger amounts, I I give them credits, and the, the credits work the same way that that uh, Hollywood credits work. So producers credits on movies and on TV shows, it's exactly the same thing. 
that's what an executive producer is. They're, they're help funding uh, the project. So uh, I've started giving those credits now on, on videos to people that support me in those in those higher amounts. And and it's a real credit. So you get credited in the video. I usually say thank you. And then but on the on the YouTube and whatever else, and I'll vouch for them should anyone ask. So some people put them on LinkedIn as 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 a producer like, credit. Uh, you probably even resume? use them. <laughs> yeah, resume or, or like Screen Actors Guild even. Like you can yeah. there's a, some interesting things you can do with producership uh actual credits so yeah that's what they are and it's it's ultimately it's a way for people for me to say thank you to people that um have been real generous uh i try to find ways to do that so uh yeah that's that's the deal it's a new thing i'm, I'm trying out and uh, we'll see how it goes but awesome uh, so far so good and uh next big project next thing coming up <laughs> part two uh of this yeah. video really i've got a few things going on though where um i've got it i'm off to south america in august uh, with Brian Forrester and also Jimmy from the Bright Insight channel. We, we've That trip's been booked out for a while, but August down to for a couple of weeks in Peru and Bolivia again. It's been a few years. Uh, I have a trip in October back to Egypt. That sold out pretty pretty quickly. Uh, I think a few spots did recently open up on that. Details for any of that stuff, if you're interested, uh, tours are on my website as well. Uh, UnchartedX.com slash tour, I think, is the one for the tour. And so I'm, I'm looking at planning trips for next year. So we're, we're actually probably going to run a pretty big trip between uh, with the contact at the crab at the cabin group um, to, to Egypt. Oh, and in September, we're doing another contact at the cabin group with Randall. So Randall Carlson, we're back to the Scablands for another week. We added a whole day to the itinerary. Uh, I can tell you the last one I was, I was on the last one, when was that in May? It was a blast. Like I was just an attendee uh, at that one and I just fantastic time. So if anyone's interested in learning a bit more about this mega flood um, and uh, these landscapes and spending some time with Randall Carlson, then then look for that. It's contact at the cabin.com uh, if you're interested, but yeah, that's coming up in September. So I've kind of got a busy rest of the year, but video projects, I've got a bunch of videos lined up part two for this look at the, uh, the middle pyramids complex and then yeah, I've got I've got a I've got a number of topics that have kind of I've been been sort of grinding on for quite a while. I've got some Tiwanaku books. I got to do another video on Puma Punku. Uh, a few things. So it's just uh, try to get them done and get them released. Awesome. You know? Yep. Awesome. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's going to be a wrap. Make sure you check out UnchartedX.com and you can find out all the information that we're talking about. Uh, if you have any questions. Um, Shell, anything you want to add? No, I'm just looking at how I can add a younger audience to with your, with your YouTube videos, with my mythology class starting in the fall again. Uh, yeah, she well, she I, teaches a part of uh, Egyptian mythology. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So I do have one video that might fit that just out off the top of my head. It's, it's a, it's called myths, gods, and the younger dryas cataclysm. And it, it's a specific look at mythology and yes. religions and how it relates to the cataclysm. Um, there's a lot of interesting examples from the Mahabharata to revelations to ancient, you know, the Aztec and Maya stories. So yeah, awesome. covers, covers a bit of breadth there. So I'll get you some younger viewers. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> that's not generally my demographic. I can tell you, but that's cool. That'd be great. Actually, like I gotta say, I'm, I, when I do, I do have some people like on Twitch and things like that, people in their twenties, even 16 and 18, I'm always uh, fascinated to hear from, from, from younger people like that, just to, that, that they're on that path. It's really encouraging. I love it because I think you said earlier that there's this, 
a global consciousness and a global awakening happening. And I, I think there is. I uh, do too. For a, a lot of this stuff, I think there are a lot of people are are having their eyes opened and and they're 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 questioning some of these these um, established narratives. And I think that's an extremely healthy thing. And the, yeah, uh, the younger you are, to, you can start doing some of that, the better, really. So. Yeah, it seems like the the harder that they try to suppress people's curiosity, the more it comes through and yep. the more they push. So, all right, we're going to wrap it up there. Ben, cool. it's been an honor and a privilege. Uh, I've been following you for a while. Absolutely love your work. Glad you could make awesome. it on and uh, have a chat with us. We got your friends coming up here soon, the Brothers of the Serpent podcast, and then Johanna yep. James Johanna from the James. UK. Yeah. That's so awesome. looking forward yeah. to these talks. So Cool. Thanks, thanks Wayne. Thanks, Michelle. Yep. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. Have a good one. Cheers. We'll talk Cheers. to you soon. Wow, Michelle, that was just a fantastic interview. I love hearing about Egypt. Absolutely. So much information. He is so knowledgeable. And we've only scratched the surface. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more stories from him later on as he continues to do research. Yeah, he does just absolutely amazing work. His work with Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock, and people in this field that are not afraid to ask important questions. Well, and actually dig for some sort of serious explanation and not just from Wikipedia. That the professor just happens to be writing and editing, but that's not biased at all. Seriously, a shake my head moment. A perfect example of how institutions want to protect what they feel is theirs. A lot of ego and just gatekeeping going on. Don't always run to just the one resource, folks. You got to dig. Absolutely. No, no pun, pun intended. In, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think with that, make sure everybody go check out Ben's website, unchartedx, all one word, dot com. And that can lead you to all of his other material, his YouTube videos. You can watch the videos on his website. You can find his social media. He's everywhere you want to look. And with that, Michelle. Well, have a good one, folks, and we will talk to you soon. And keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. 
So until next time. Join me, George Norrie, for Contact in the Desert Worldwide Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to the 28th. Contact in the Desert will be an epic weekend of exploration into UFOs, ancient alien civilizations, consciousness, AI, crop circles, and cutting-edge science. More than 130 presentations, 67 speakers, and two extra weeks to view our extraordinary lineup. Get your tickets today at contactinthedesert.com. It's time to make contact. Contact in the desert.com.